there's nothing in the world quite like Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. Hello and welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. This is a show about the creators of three world-renowned blocks in Beverly Hills, and one of them is the unforgettable Bijan. My name is Bijan. I have been designing clothing since I was 15. My clothing is made in wonderful country of Italy. I have 40,000 clients. Many are the most powerful men in the world. Majesties, royal family, Forbes billionaires. I, I have dressed 36 different presidents all over the world. I happen to be the most expensive clothing designer in the world. I am sorry for that. The late Bijan Paksad designed pricey, one-of-a-kind men's clothes for the famous and the infamous. He was a pivotal figure on Rodeo Drive and in the Iranian community of Los Angeles. We'll learn the secrets to Bijan's success story shortly. And we'll hear from the writer Purushista Kakpur about what he means to LA's Iranian community. I think Bijan was the first time a lot of Americans saw a proud Iranian man. I think we all kind of took pride in Bijan. But we'll start, as we always do, with a visit to Rodeo Drive, as it continues reawakening after much upheaval in recent months. Now, stores are trying to welcome back customers amidst a sudden spike in cases of COVID-19. Kathy Gohari of the Rodeo Drive Committee has the latest. Well, it's a new day. I don't know if you are aware, but we had some rollbacks of some of the restaurants and facilities are no longer allowed to welcome guests indoors for dining. So we have outdoor dining and shopping still happening on Rodeo Drive. So we're making lemonade out of lemons and welcoming the people who are are coming onto Rodeo Drive. And the traffic is actually picking up on the street, I have to say. Has Governor Gavin Newsom's uh, rules on or decision to shut restaurants, uh, indoor dining, how has that affected indoor shopping, if at all? You know, I really believe that indoor shopping and indoor dining to a certain extent go hand in hand. But the good news is that outdoor dining is still happening uh, in Beverly Hills. And the better news is that we're L.A. and we have magnificent weather. So they're able to sit outside. Um, Just yesterday, I was walking by a few cafes and they were all pretty much social distanced, but packed. So... um, Again, glass is half full these days. Our guest this week is Nicholas Bijan, and he is talking about the House of Bijan, which his father founded in the 1970s. Kathy, can you describe Bijan's contribution to Rodeo Drive? Oh, boy. He has put his mark on Rodeo Drive for generations to come. He put his mark by opening an appointment-only boutique on a street when such thing was never heard of before in the past. He was not just luxury, but ultra luxury as he is today. His flagship store on Rodeo is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a landmark. 
I mean, uh, we have tourists who have come repeatedly to Rodeo Drive for decades, and they all look for his special yellow car on the street. And when it's not there, they wonder what has happened. I mean, it's literally, it's, it's iconic. It's part of the street. That's Kathy Gohari, Director of Client Engagement at Valentino. Bijan, his last name was Paksad. But like Cher and Madonna, Bijan dropped his last name and shot to fame. Everyone knew him as Bijan. You couldn't not know Bijan because he splashed his smiling face and distinctive signature on billboards. They loomed over Santa Monica Boulevard in West LA for decades. The way I kind of began to know Bijan is through his billboards on Santa Monica. Um, and me and my friends would always drive past and then be like, who is that Bijan? Like, he's so, you know, he just goes for it. <laughs> Pari Isan is an Instagram fashion influencer. And like Bijan, Pari's of Iranian descent. And I, too, remember going into his boutique with my mother on Rodeo Drive with all the Persian carpets and um, the kind of like canary yellow, which was like the color of my living room growing up, that same canary yellow, which I love. Um, and that kind of panache, I just kind of adore him. You know, I've always admired what he created, what he built. It's kind of amazing what he did. And so I always kind of looked at him as somebody who could collaborate with anyone and do anything and just this limitlessness to him. And the name Bijan means hero um, in Farsi. So I think that that's how I see him. Bijan left Iran for Los Angeles in 1973. Back then, he was an upscale clothing designer who had set his sights on conquering America. The House of Bijan opened in 1976. It was a time of great turmoil for Iran. We'll get to that part of the story in a moment. First, though, we're going to tour the House of Bijan with Bijan's son, Nicholas Bijan. He took over the company after his father passed away in 2011. Shortly after that, the building that housed the original Bijan Boutique on Rodeo Drive was purchased by LVMH for $122 million. The House of Bijan reopened across the street from its original Rodeo Drive location. You know, the first thing that you see is, of course, our window display. Our window displays are very um, unusual for Rodeo Drive because they're usually... Uh, set with some kind of theme um, from, you know, vintage motorcycles to um, maybe hay bales with more fall uh, items from our fall collection in, in the window. As you walk in, you see displays uh, on antiques and on glass tables and on contemporary tables. You see they're displayed like pieces in a museum and they have fresh flowers that match the color of the jackets and the shoes and you say, what's going on here? But the flowers are also done in a way that's not very feminine. It's just very interesting. You walk through and of course, maybe you're greeted by myself. And really our job is to welcome you and to introduce you to the House of Bijan. You'll see that there's a, 
original 1967 oil on canvas Fernando Botero painting displayed in the boutique, framed in 18th century French chapel doors. And uh, maybe you go up the stairs to our private collection area. When you get to the top of the staircase, there are uh, wardrobes that are closed. And by the way, the doorknob of those doors is pure perfume. Wow. And you see that there's an 18th century French armoire. It's a, a beautiful antique, classic, classic antique armoire. And when I open the armoire and you look inside, it actually continues into a secret dressing room and there's a, a place to try on the clothing there. And I think that it is so experiential to walk into a place and to receive a tour and to receive all of these sensory overload kind of displays, it makes you feel really, really good. And that's what has really allowed us to stand apart from so many other designers for so many years. Can anyone make an appointment? Anybody can make an appointment. Nicholas Bijan was 19 when his father died. He was left in charge of a world-famous luxury brand that was completely defined by his father. I asked Nicholas to tell us his father's story. So, um, my father was born in Tehran, Iran, in, on April 4th, 1944, so 4-4-44. And um, he was a self-proclaimed perfectionist. Even at a very young age, he would make sure everybody's ties and collars and jackets were perfectly aligned for family photographs and things like that. He always loved color. He always loved clothing. He always loved luxury. And uh, he came from, you know, relatively speaking, a very modest background. And my father really wanted to bring the luxuries of Europe to Iran. And he right away started to design clothing and immediately became very, very successful because people... Uh, were captivated by his personality. They were captivated by his uh, eye for detail and, and his so-called perfectionism. But his ambitions were much greater than what he could have achieved in his native country, and he wanted to come to America. America was the land of opportunity, and it was where he would build his empire. Was that before the revolution in Iran? Yes. So he migrated before the Iranian revolution, and, and I think for the... You know, most part, it was before the mass uh, exodus uh, and immigration that you see happening around uh, the late 70s from Iran to uh, not only Europe and North America, but to specifically Los Angeles and a few other cities in, in uh, the United States. Tell us the story of how he happened upon Rodeo Drive and his partner. Yeah, of course. Dar Mabubi. Yes, yes. So, you know, what he's told me as a father to a son, I'm sure trying to instill uh, lots of, 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 of hard work ethics, is that he arrived with just a, a suitcase full of clothing and on his own. That was, I believe, in early 70s. And uh, he saw opportunity here. He started a, you know, clothing store and he partnered up with uh, the co-founder of, of our company, uh, Mr. Dharma Bubi, who was a wealthy real estate investor in the city at that time, um, to build a 
beautiful, unbelievable uh, monument of luxury on Rodeo Drive. So I was told with $50,000 a piece, they started the company. And that was 1976. And they invested heavily in uh, Rodeo Drive. They invested heavily in building Rodeo Drive to be what it is today. And uh, I think Dharma Booby, uh, Fred Heyman, my father, quite a few other characters along those years really are the ones who pushed Rodeo Drive and dedicated their lives to making Rodeo Drive what it is today. Bichon became known as the most expensive clothing designer in the world. Why? <laughs> There's uh, quite a few things about Bichon that are controversial. I think that is probably one of the most controversial. But you have to understand, our products are expensive for a reason. They're not expensive to just simply be expensive. We uh, have a basic core value uh, proposition that we want to instill in all of our products. And that is that everything is made with the finest, highest quality raw materials. It's sourced from all different countries around the world. Then it's shipped to our factory in Italy, which is making everything by hand, which you don't see uh, really any brands doing today. And then it's made in very, very limited quantities. So it must be expensive. I mean, just to buy the fabric per yard in our seasonal collections at times is more expensive than a retail item that you would find on Rodeo Drive. And that's just per yard. So, you know, that's something that my father always taught me. He said, we are not a rich enough brand to make things cheap. Tell us about the clientele. Your father dressed 36 heads of state. Uh, among them, Presidents Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. How did this all happen? It's, in it's incredible. I mean, I think it was a certain amount of luck involved. But of course, you know, there was a lot of hard work, a lot of marketing and of course, it's kind of like you build it and they will come. When you, when you want to make something that is so luxurious and so high quality, I think your customer base will respect that it's quality. But when they wear it, they get compliments and they feel good. They feel younger. They feel able to take that board meeting. Or if it's a more casual collection, they know that they're looking uh, so chic while they're traveling in you know, the French Riviera or, or, or wherever it may be. So... You know, I think as the presidents uh, go, you know, there was a lot of progression that went along with that. I mean, we were in New York for many years on Fifth Avenue and the United Nations uh, was, you know, the General Assembly time of year was basically our, our busiest time of year. Interesting. And, uh, you know, further than that, it's kind of a, a, I, I hate to talk about it like this, but it's kind of a club. You know, there's a, a video on YouTube about Governor Schwartz, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and uh, he's speaking at a podium and he's talking about Bijan and he's saying that he had this little competition with the late President Bush Sr. And every time that they would see each other, they would try and one-up each other with their Bijan suits. Giorgio Armani, Oscar de la Renta, Tom Ford all came to be dressed by Bijan. Can you tell us about how such notable fashion designers became clients? Well, I think that 
he was so uh, disruptive in his field. And disruptive is a term that we use so often today. Um, but back then, I don't think it was as prevalent a term. But if you think about it, that's what he did. He said, I'm going to come to Rodeo Drive at the time, one of the most famous destinations for luxury. And then he said, I'm going to take a shirt that maybe at the most expensive is $450 at the most expensive place, and I'm going to charge $800. Who would do that? You know, there were so many things. I'm going to design the interior of, a, of, of my client's yacht or the interior of my client's aircraft. We're going to make a gold-plated gun with cult that they did in the 80s. And, <laughs> and he just did the, the most unbelievable, uh, controversial things that people wanted to know what's the story here. And many people maybe got turned off, but I think more people than not were really captivated by his kind, generous, creative nature. Can you explain the complications of dressing, say, a political or a public figure who emerges to be unsavory? Sure. How do you recover from something like that? Say Paul Manafort? Yeah. Well, you know, there's been in 44 year history of the company, there's been quite a few examples of controversial clients over the years from all different countries. And for us, we try and, of course, respect all of our clients' privacies as much as we can. And um, we try not to get into these partisan issues. My father used to tell me, people would say, how can you dress Vladimir Putin and presidents of the United States? How can you do something like that? I am not in politics. I'm in the politics of fashion. So... (laughs) So, so, you know, of course, we have social responsibility efforts that we must, uh, you know, especially in today's age, uh, we must, uh, of course, respect. But to a certain extent, we want to respect our clients. We want to build relationships that last for generations like we've done. But to a certain extent, we always want to keep a professional barrier. And to be honest, forgive me for saying this, but sometimes the bad publicity ends up being the best publicity. You were listening to Nicholas Bijan. His father, Bijan, was forward-thinking, too. Bijan's ad campaigns were revolutionary. He made himself the face of his brand before designers like Karl Lagerfeld and Tom Ford. He presaged body positivity, featuring a naked, plus-size model called Bella in a provocative ad campaign that was an homage to his beloved Botaro. Before basketball players were lauded for their off-court style, Bijan cultivated a deep and lasting relationship with Michael Jordan. Together, they launched Michael Jordan Cologne in 1996. Bijan was also famous for his love of color, especially yellow. Bijan yellow is a very signature and, and unique color yellow. It's a very happy color that my father loved. It was his favorite color. And besides that... It was a very bright color, and he wanted to use bright colors for men in a masculine way. Wow. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, I can't think of yellow without thinking of Bijan yellow. Poor Shista Kakpur is a novelist and writer who was born in Tehran and grew up in Pasadena. She worked for a time as a salesperson at Lana Marks, the luxury handbag boutique which once operated on Rodeo Drive. Horashista reflects on the Iranian immigrant experience in her new book, Brown Album, 
essays on exile and identity. And I suspect that Bijan Yellow was inspired by the lion mm. and sword on the flag of, and this is the royalist flag. So this yes. is the Iran pre-revolution flag. And basically every Iranian, at least in my family circle, right, who was very proud of being Iranian and who had left Iran during the revolution, they in some way or another in that era especially identified as royalists. And that yellow... You know, that, that yellow of the, the lion and the sword and the sun, it's such a vibrant yellow. And in fact, it's like as close to gold as yellow can get. Mm. And I think of that Bijan yellow as really being an incandescent yellow. It's like, it's the yellow you see in Disney movies where, when they're trying to represent gold, really. Mm. The funny thing about that yellow, too, that I think about often is that it's not, it's, it's a hard yellow to pull off. It's not universally flattering. So... In fashion, of course, you know, when you take on something that's not universally flattering, that's like all the more fabulous because you're saying like, look at me, I can even do this, right? Porishista Kakpur writes about Bijan in one of her essays. The title is The King of Tarantulas. For a lot of us who grew up in the Los Angeles area, we call a particular part of Los Angeles Tarantulas. And, you know, you might get people bickering about exactly where that is, but I would define it as most of Beverly Hills, uh, most of Westwood, a good chunk of Brentwood and Santa Monica. Basically that part, a lot of the area flanking UCLA, um, you, it, it's basically where a lot of the Iranian Americans in the Los Angeles area settled. Now, my family was in Pasadena, so we were a good 30, 40 minutes away from that. But we were pretty much in Tarantulas every weekend because that was where you went for delicious Persian food. That was where you also went to People Watch. I mean, Beverly Hills, Rodeo Drive, Bel Air. My parents, we were always driving with our crappy hatchback cars. <laughs> you know, we, were, we were doing the rounds there because that's where you saw Iranians thriving. You saw glamorous Iranians wearing all head-to-toe designer and it was pretty exciting, you know, especially if you're in a struggling immigrant group to suddenly see your people in this part of like a, a big city doing really, really well. How did you end up on Rodeo Drive? It was a real coincidence. I went to Johns Hopkins for graduate school and it was at Johns Hopkins that I became friends with an undergrad and his mother owned a boutique on Rodeo Drive. And it was very funny because, you know, I always thought of Rodeo Drive as being such like the main street in Tarantulas, basically. And here I was as a shop girl, and I was basically interacting with Iranians more than I had ever interacted with them <laughs> when I lived in um, California. I grew up there, but I really, Pasadena, you didn't have a ton of Iranians. And yet here I was, and I was dealing with them daily. When you were working at Lanamarks, you became fascinated by the House of Bijan. Yes. <laughs> so it was the placement of the boutique was amazing. Lana Marks was basically almost across the street from the Bijan boutique. And the Bijan boutique, it stands out because it's a giant yellow, kind of like Spanish colonial style. And that I would say if anyone thought of tarantulas, that would be one of the first symbols that came to mind. I think the Iranians that often came into Lana Marks boutique were basically people who had been shopping at Bijan store which I believe at that point was was still by appointment. I, I think you really it still is. Just, is it? Okay, yeah. That was a fascinating thing to me. I mean, you know, I, of course, thought that was like a little bit cringy that not anyone could go into a store. But I also had a sort of secret pride that like, wow, we Iranians have really made it if 
random people can't walk into our store and you have to go in by appointment. Interesting. Can you talk to me about someone like Bijan, Iranian immigrant to the United States at a time that was very dicey to be Iranian, you know, oh, yeah. a large sector of the population in the United States viewed Iranians yeah. as terrorists. And yes. here was someone who was splashing his Persian name and face yeah. uh, identity on a billboard. This is so important. And if you think about the xenophobia and racism with Iranians, particularly at the early 80s, where really it was so blatant. I mean, there was so much anti-Iranian sentiment in a very mainstream way. I remember seeing it on sitcoms even and things like that. And then, of course, for Iranian women, it was a little easier, right? Always when you have the women in any like so-called problematic immigrant group, the women have an easier time. The men are seen as more difficult. But like Bijan was this fairly short guy. And one of the funny things in his ads was that he often, instead of hiding it, he sort of played with that image. He played to it. He played to it, exactly. So he'd have Michael Jordan and right next to him, and he'd be like standing on a basketball, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he'd still be so dwarfed, right? He'd be this tiny guy. And so you just never really saw in a mainstream context the Iranian male face. It just wasn't there in the mainstream. If you did see it, as you said, it was only in a terrorist context. So I think Bijan was the first time a lot of Americans saw a proud Iranian man in the public eye. Now, I think he paved the way for like, you know, years later, Beverly Hills, after his like, you know, big ascent, the Beverly Hills mayor was Jimmy Del Shad. Mm. I know it sounds kind of weird to say this, but I don't think that would have happened without Bijan. Mm. I think we all kind of took pride in Bijan, e- even if we thought, you know, y- you know, our family would joke about him a little bit. Yeah, your family had, you write in Brown Album that your family had mixed emotions about Bijan. Yeah, I mean, in a way, look. When we think about Tarantulas and we think of Bijan, we're talking about like really consumer culture stuff. We're talking about like very mainstream commercialism. And when I think about that movie that I love, Clueless, that came out, you know, when I was still, I don't know, I was older, but but still young. Mm-hmm. I love that scene where, you know, the Cher character, Alicia Silverstone, is telling her friends. And that's the Persian Mafia. You can't hang with them unless you own a BMW. I remember laughing so hard at that part because it was true, but of course cringing a little bit too because it was true, you know? Right. I mean, that's the thing about the Iranian population. I think in their quest to assimilate, right, at a time when it was very difficult and there were odds against them, they kind of embraced the best and worst of L.A., Mm. which was like just being very blatantly wealthy, being all about flashing your BMW and your Armani and your, like, everything was designer Everything was very nouveau riche, even if you actually came from old money. That was a funny thing. A lot of these new money Iranians actually came from old money, which mm-hmm. was hilarious. But right. so they, they, you just never saw anything like it. So I think I think we had that, those mixed emotions because on, on one hand, we wanted to be treated kind of seriously and, 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 and really, t- you know, seen as full people with, you know, and, and seen as intelligent people with this great history of like art and science. And and so, like, you know, just seeing celebrity stuff wasn't necessarily the best. And I think every L.A. person has mixed emotions about, you know, the whole 90210 thing. Mm -hmm. But but of course, you know, I I can't even say the word Bijan without smiling, (laughs) you know. That was Porashista Kakapur, author of The King of Tarantulas. 
That essay about Bijan appears in her collection, Brown Album, Essays on Exile and Identity. Bijan was to many the ideal immigrant success story, someone who worked hard and made it big. Here's how Arnold Schwarzenegger, himself a first-generation immigrant, put it in an interview at a Bijan memorial event in 2011. He was, I mean, the, the perfect example of the American dream. I mean, it started with nothing, and as he said, with the age of 15, started designing fashion. And had a vision and had also the guts that he knew that uh, with hard work here he can make it. And, and he did. I mean, he showed to every, showed everyone. As a matter of fact, I used him many times as an example. Even when the economy is down, he made a lot of money because he started getting creative. He didn't just wait for the banks to lend more money or for government to go and change policy or to change the tax code or anything. He said, you know, I'm going to work what the system is and I'm going to get around it. And he got creative and he always was successful because of it. I also asked Nicholas Bijan how his father saw his role within the Persian community in the United States. You know, he was very proud of his heritage. And it shows a lot about his character that he, although he told me many times he owed all his success to the United States of America, he was still very proudly a Persian or an Iranian immigrant in this country. And I I remember uh, a journalist from the Huffington Post, I'll never forget this in my life, she contacted me uh, because she was writing, I think, an obituary or something of the sorts. And she said... I'm an Iranian immigrant. I came to this country in the early 80s, late 70s. And uh, at that time, it was a very difficult time for me with my Persian heritage and my my Persian name to be in the United States during the hostage crisis in Iran. And and Iran is part of this, uh, you know, what would become known as the axis of evil. So when I saw your father with his Persian name and a big smile, you know, on billboards or with presidents or with in Vogue or Vanity Fair or Talk Magazine, he really made me feel confident enough to be myself in the United States. Nicholas Bijan is now tasked with continuing his father's legacy into the future, and he's doing so at a challenging time for everyone in retail. In March, he introduced e-commerce for the first time in the House of Bijan's history. The majority of our collection is available through uh, our brick-and-mortar boutiques, but absolutely it is a very important aspect for our brand and all luxury brands, uh, given the new reality we live in. So definitely it is a big obligation uh, of mine to make sure that House of Bijan remains the most expensive, most exclusive, highest quality, best customer service lifestyle brand in the luxury market. Um, And e-com is something that we definitely are prioritizing along with other digital marketing platforms. And Nicholas has been dealing with the impact of the pandemic. COVID-19 hit Italy hard, and that froze Bijan's supply chain for a while. Bijan responded by forging a partnership with AccuShield to make 10,000 protective face shields to give to frontline workers. They put the House of Bijan logo on them 
And then... Because these face shields had that Bijan branding on it, um, we got so many requests from all over the world of people who wanted to actually purchase these. So thanks to thousands of customers who um, bought them through our new e-commerce, we were able to donate at least, I think, another 10,000 uh, face shields to uh, UCLA's uh, health clinic, uh, Cedar sinai all the different uh, police departments and fire departments and um, just local hospitals around uh, Los Angeles. And furthermore, we were able to ship thousands of them to Italy to be dispersed uh, among the um, community in Italy so that people could use them once they started to go back to work. Are you planning to make more? So we are uh, not only continuing to sell them for charity, for relief efforts, but also we've now, I think about a month and a half ago after we started donating and, and, and seeing how people reacted to these uh, pieces of protective equipment, we started making uh, Bijan branded ones that are Bijan yellow. And we were sending them as um, in, a, in a beautiful box and packaging as a uh, basically a gift to, I'd say about 100, uh, 150 of our clients around the world. So we just wanted to send them something that let them know that we are, win you know, we are in it together. We are with you. We are thinking of you, and uh, you know, this is uh, something that maybe you guys might enjoy sharing with your families. Nicholas Bijan is the son of Bijan Paksad, the founder of the House of Bijan on Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. I look forward to sharing more Rodeo Drive stories with you on the next episode. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the City of Beverly Hills. It is edited by Francis Anderton and Avishai Artsy. Brian Banks composed the theme music. Livia Manduel, Mirabel Allen, and Guthrie McCarty-Vachon are the production coordinators. The executive producer is Lynn Winter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, healthy, and wear a mask. Thank you.